So really the main concept behind zero trust is that devices should not be trusted by default, uh, regardless where they are, whether it's internally or externally, they need to be verified and confirmed that they can connect to the relevant devices. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Andy, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you uh, coming on today because I know we have been trying to set this up for a while and I really do appreciate Ryan setting up that introduction as well. So if he's listening to this, he, he, um, he'll know exactly that we've recorded the podcast. So I'm keen today because we want to talk about a few things that seems to be creeping up in the market a lot. And I know you've got a lot of experience. We sort of worked in the same organization a fair few years back. So I'm keen to pick your brain and understand some of the things that you're seeing in the market. But before we jump into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please talk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, firstly, thanks for having me on. Uh, absolute pleasure. So basically, I started my career um, over about 20 years ago back in my hometown in Eastbourne, the UK. Um, uh, basically, I remember my first day, my boss was uh, placed the computer tower on my desk, opened the side panel and asked me to name all the uh, the elements in it. I, I think from that day, I knew I had a lot to learn. Um, but I started, um, basically, as a lot of people back then used to do, building the computers, configuring software, and I remember defending against um, viruses that came through without really having that antivirus software there, which was always an entertaining day. Um, I was lucky enough to experience a broad range of technologies through that experience. I was developing software, building accounting software, um, Microsoft administrator, and then I found my way into networking. And that's where I really found my passion um, in networking, where I followed a common path through Cisco qualifications of CCNA, CCMP, and CCVP. And then about 2007, I was I moved over to Australia and I became the telecoms manager of DHL, where I was responsible of managing the Australian network and how it interconnects with Asia-Pac networks. And then a few years after that, I moved over to CBA, um, where yourself was working, which, which you said, uh, to manage the, the complex network security um, projects there. And really over those experiences, um, provided me the insights to build and a product to better manage the network security controls and network governance across the enterprises. And really, Ditno was born, and, and that's what we've been working on for the last seven years now. Wow, so that's quite a journey. Have you, uh, I would say maybe in the last, like even five years, you probably would have seen quite a significant change in how businesses are operating. I mean, that's probably some of the things that you and I sort of talked about initially speaking. So, Maybe just at a quick high level, like what have been the significant changes that you've seen in the market? Oh, yeah. I mean, the adoption of cloud, I think um, we can't deny, is, is absolutely changed everything. I think if you're looking at the way that innovation is being uh, developed now and the rate is done, it, it's just amazing. Um, I remember, you know, the, the start, what I was saying about building computers, you know, everyone that's starting out, we don't really have the physical teams anymore apart from laptops. We click a button, then we suddenly have a full uh, kind of network built. Uh, all the v- VMs there don't really use VMs there, all microservices. I think that adoption of that agility um, from an enterprise 
is the real change that we've seen in the last uh, five years and it's only going to rapidly increase as well. No, you're absolutely right. And I think because of the pandemic that obviously accelerated things and people's adoption and people just having to move their backs or against the wall, they needed to do something, right? So I guess, I mean, depends which way you look at it. Uh, people that want to build innovation and they want to progress things, they're going to see it as a, as a positive. Other people may view it as a negative. Uh, but yep. one of the things that's really interesting that I, I think I've spoken to someone else on the show before um, about zero trust. Now, a lot of people seem to be speaking about this. Uh, it's not by, by all means like a new concept, but I still believe mm. that people don't quite understand what that means. So perhaps, Andy, if you can explain the concept of zero trust to the audience, uh, as most of our listen, listeners are executives. Uh, so I guess they mm. have strong foundations and undoubtedly have heard of zero trust but it's always good to get a firm definition before we sort of dive deeper just so people do understand what we are talking about and that sort of the meanings behind what, what we are speaking about here today. Yeah, sure. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it's been around for a while, but I think the terms have changed. I think that the zero trust, trust term came and really was marketed very well by um, um, an industry analyst at Forrester. Um, it was kind of revived. Um, but back in, I remember the early 2000s, around about the Jericho forums was promoting deprimatization. Um, and I think that was around the area where we were sort of looking at networking, the internet, how networking was starting to change, really about more connected devices and the virtualization was becoming more popular. So really a zero trust security model can be known as really perimeterless security. And describes an approach to the design and implementation of, of IT systems and, and how they're secured, really verifying the connectivity and the identity of devices. So really the main concept behind Zero Trust is that devices should not be trusted by default, uh, regardless where they are, whether it's internally or externally, they need to be verified and confirmed that they can connect to the relevant devices. So would you say in your experience, so you said like devices should not be trusted. Would you say though people are still falling into this position that they are trusted? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, if we look at the common uh, pattern or architecture of a lot of organizations still, even though they are transforming, they still kind of have what we call that, that soft shell where they have their perimeter devices, but then everything internally is really an, an open network where if people were just to come in and plug uh, their device into a network port, they probably would be able to access, maybe not from authentication perspective, but definitely from a connectivity perspective to most of the majority and the critical devices in that organization. And I think we've seen that from some of the attacks that have happened recently, what that can, can cause and the, the trouble it um, kind of puts on an organization. No, you're absolutely right. So just just to go maybe a level deeper on that point, let's um let's talk about micro segmentation versus network segmentation. So explain the difference between them for those who are unfamiliar, because I, I still see people sort of interchanging these terms. So again, we want to set the scene so people know what we are talking about and and the differences b between them. Yeah. Yeah, no, th this one's really interesting because for many years, the most popular network segmentation is between the perimeter being the DMZ and that internal network. I think everyone's very familiar with that. Um, the, 
this was a considered acceptable when the attacks were not so advanced and external threats were the main concern. I think newer technologies have enabled substantial growth in the east-west traffic attacks, so leading to insider threats within the enterprise. So larger organizations, a little bit more mature, started over the last 10 years probably to start extending network segmentation within the internal networks, creating those kind of sub-networks. So an example of network segmentation is to create maybe security zones, quite large, um, as I said, sub-networks, maybe segregating their database tiers with their application web and users. And those zones, large zones, restrict movement to, between those zones. So an example of that would be maybe users can only connect to the web tier, and then the web tier can only connect to the app, and then the app can only talk to the DB. So network segmentation is good, but it still presents that opportunity for attackers to move laterally within the zones and sometimes across zones, where the concept of micro-segmentation goes a step further and logically divides the network into distinct application segments and workloads. So an example, the security grant zones per application. So really these micro levels controls and, and stops the lateral movement between the individual applications, therefore dramatically reducing that attack surface. One of the things, so when, you, when you're talking to me, right, like if you're dealing with a large enterprise, let's say they're operating on legacy systems or it's so big, you know, they've got 50,000 users plus like, and they haven't done any of this type of stuff. So how hard is it for companies to A, wrap their head around, B, start doing this transformation and, and even sort of getting used to how things need to be changed? Are those hard conversations that you're having with people or? Yeah, it's, it's. I think if we're looking at it when we when we were starting to promote the idea, as I said, about seven years ago now, uh, how time flies. Um, basically, that was kind of the they were kind of reluctant to literally go on that journey. But I think really there has been a change over the last few years about they they kind of knowing the importance of this. They're really putting it as a priority now to really mitigate that risk. So. Um, for example, getting started is probably the the the, the biggest journey that they the start of the journey they've got to overcome. And I think the biggest thing about that is that discovery. I think a lot of organisations really need to understand their foundations and get the fundamentals right to know how much they've got work in front of them. They need to understand their network exposure. They need to understand if their critical or their crown Jews are exposed to very untrusted elements. I think, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later in, in getting into it, is we've really got to use the newer technologies and around automation to take a lot of that manual workload out of it and use the technology and data to quickly get an understanding, a foundation that then we can build on. So let's. So we've spoken about you know uh, micro segmentation and network segmentation as well as zero trust. So let's wrap this all around so can you explain how zero trust is underpinned by micro and network segmentation again it's for clarity and what's the relationship between the three now working together basically zero trust is made up of layers so um the question is how many layers do you need so the network segmentation starts with building boundaries uh, between the trust zones 
so the first layer of trust. Micro-segmentation only allows trust and connections between the devices in the same application and immediately denies and does not trust everything else in that network. So then you can add other controls like authentication, identity management, and then all of these controls contribute to the overall trust strategy. So it's really thinking about those layers and how many you need to be satisfied with your zero trust strategy uh, throughout your enterprise. Really appreciate you uh, sharing that and providing that clarity. We spoke about this just before a little earlier, but let's sort of maybe get into the specifics of people's thoughts on organizations adopting a zero trust strategy. So number one, where would you see the misunderstandings? And then number two, off your point before, do you believe people are overwhelmed by this? This is not an easy task. It's not flick of a switch. It's all done. It's all set up. There's a lot of complexity do it to doing something like this, especially, like I said earlier, if you are quite a large enterprise uh, operating on uh, legacy systems and a lot of people. So I think that's definitely going to be a point of constraint and perhaps apprehension of people adopting this, would you say? Yeah, I, I definitely would. Um, it was it was actually interesting, not going off topic a little bit, but um, I was interested, I was, I was lucky enough to talk to one of the leading uh, container and EKS specialists at, at Amazon. And I had a really good conversation with him and he was um, talking about just the complexity around one um, EKS being Kubernetes and containers, the way that it adds so much business, business value, but the complexity that's really involved to do it correctly. And I think that that's just showing that there are so many choices and technology and especially in security and things like that, they need to have the right skills and the right um, attitude to get to where they want to go. So I think the biggest misunderstanding is the amount of effort it takes to create and secure a foundation to start building that zero trust network. As I mentioned earlier, zero trust describes an approach to the design and implementation of IT systems. Um, we released a blog actually with the title, Eating the Elephant One Bite at a Time. And it outlines how organization can transform and secure one IT service at a time. Eventually, you will have a micro-segmented network. So I think more importantly, you can focus on the IT services that hold the confidentiality information or are critical to the organization. And as I said before, I think using that automation to accelerate in the build is process is, is absolutely critical. So I think in summary, the misunderstanding is that everything needs to be done all at once. Well, that's actually not technically true. The thing that you can do is just take off little chunks and start improving and prioritize this. And it's a journey. If you think about if we had, you know, 100 different applications in an enterprise, but four of them are absolutely critical, let's just focus on them four, let's get them in a zero trust, and then we can slowly start moving out to the rest of the applications over time. I really like that approach because, I mean, it's like doing anything, right? If you look at a full-blown project, it looks overwhelming and, mm. and it deters you, right? So are some Absolutely. of the conversations that, I mean, if you go into a company and you're saying, you know, exactly what you just said, you've got 100 applications, but let's just focus on four. Is that mm. then more appetizing to people and they're sort of less deterred from doing this type of project because again like there's a lot of complexity there's a lot of variety mm. in options now too so it's not just there's one or two options there's there's so many different variations to to to, to looking into to these types of uh projects mm. but would you say that 
companies need to adopt that one mouthful at a time because then they're likely to get started, but then it means that they're not going to be worried then like, well, this is going to take up all my time. I don't know how to do this effectively. Uh, I'm scared about this whole process. Like are those the sort of emotions that people are sort of running through when they're speaking with you? Absolutely. I think what you said there is is like those big projects. I think, let's be honest, I think everybody's busy. Everybody's busy and they've got to um, have all these priorities of, you know, what's next and things like that. And the biggest thing is keeping the business running. You know, I I think that's that's very important, but they've got to do it securely. So I think breaking it down into the transit is a a lot more appealing. Um, Not to contradict what I've just said, but just to give you kind of an understanding. What, what we're saying is more about we do need a full discovery over the entire platform. We need the automation tools to get that secure baseline. And what I mean by that is really in the space of about six to eight weeks using new technologies, you should have a true vi- visual representation and understanding of what your applications are doing. I'm not saying they're going to be correct and, and all tightened down from day one, but from, a, from that initial phase, that discovery, we will understand where our network exposure is. Once we've got that, we have really improved the enterprise using automation. So we have locked everything down. We've now got um, a view, but it's still pretty much open. Then I think then the journey comes of starting to build that, that zero trust down. Then we can start saying that we're now gonna focus on application per application, tighten it down, to then get to the end goal of where we want to be is that true zero trust on every single application uh, going forward. Yeah, that's that's really interesting in terms of your approach. But one of the things that you said, visual representation, yep. what are your applications doing? So yep. how often would you go into a company in your experience and people say, I can't provide that to you, Andy, or I don't know, or maybe the number's completely off. Like, how common is that? Uh, very. Um, yeah, very, very. So so I think um, most organisation, um, and I think it actually, it, it, it's no, people haven't just neglected this. I just think it's because maybe they haven't had the tools at their expo- exposal over the last uh, few years. So. Um, I think now we're we're going into a bit of a transition phase, especially with cloud and things like that, where they kind of um, really promote you to understand your applications before going there because they force you to do the correct security controls, is really um, having that um, visual representation and understanding the application. I think people are now starting to realize that the tools are there to implement them to then start having a better idea. And I think a very interesting thing as well about this is the more agile that organizations are going and transforming their IT service is becoming more and more critical to have that visual representation, understand how all the connectivity is happening so they make better strategic decisions. So for example, if they wanted to migrate a database, whether it's going to cloud or another data center, they would really want to understand what connects in it today so they can move it without causing any impact to the organization. Gotcha. Okay. So just, okay. So just so I have 
have this right. What I'm hearing is that you're saying for people that are overwhelmed, they're looking to do this type of project. The first thing is to the discovery phase. You need to have a visual representation of your applications. Then I think to your point earlier around, you know, if you have a hundred, perhaps just focus on the four first. Would you say that would be a really good solid starting point to avoid people from like we said earlier feeling overwhelmed um as a first pass and then as things progress like you said eating one mouthful at a time to progress that project forward absolutely yeah that that's the that's the best way to do it it's is kind of we understand where we are and we're slowly improve all the time it doesn't need to be a silver bullet it needs to be just this gradual journey with the processes that everyone's working with um to get on that same kind of journey to get to the end goal, just small bits. And it, as, as you highlighted, it's, it's very similar to what other things are happening in, in software development even and infrastructure. There used to be these mammoth IT services are now getting broken down in, in very small chunks so they're manageable. That's, it, that's the way that sh- security should be done to mirror that as well. No, absolutely. I mean, when you're looking at a full project like that, you're just like, I don't even want to start this. But if you break it down, it's not so intense then as well. So I think, yeah, I think that's good that you've really articulated that because I know even discussions that I have with people, it can be quite um, full on for them to approach something like this, ensuring that they're keeping the lights on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And there's probably one thing, sorry, mm -hmm. Chris, one thing I'll add to that as well is, that what we're talking about is just control. One thing I haven't mentioned as well is having a governance layer over the top of it. And I think that's where it all comes together. It's that discovery to understand the connection, put the control, but then they need a basically real-time governance layer assessing the controls underneath. So if the control did go a little bit wayward, they would be able to assess it very quickly to then bring it back in line. So they can then have that ongoing management um, going forward of them IT services. So just to clarify on that point, would you start the governance then after you've done all the discovery or is this running simultaneously or at what stage would you start to really bring that in? Yeah, it, it, it all honestly, it depends. I think it right. depends. We're questioning what you said before about how well does the organisation know their applications. A lot okay. of the time, you know, a lot of them don't. So what, what we'd really do is build that kind of visual um, mapping of it and then we can build the governance according to the data that we've uh, discovered other people do it simultaneously they kind of have a rough idea of how their application architectures are built they build the governance then they do the discovery with all the controls and then they compare it back to that governance layer it's that flexibility but it still comes to that common one one application at a time and then we move forward from there no I gotcha okay i think that's a really really great way of um of articulating that so, Andy, in some of our previous chats, you mentioned that we've seen some changes over the last 18 months. Now, earlier in the interview, we spoke with the last five years, but if we sort of fast forward now to the last 18 months, sort of specifically around the pandemic, uh, when it comes to micro-segmentation. So, I'm really keen for you to sort of elaborate on your observations in the space. Yep. Um, just on the, the, the pandemic, I mean, I remember... Um, a few when it when it just before it was going to start the the amount of people was really wanting to do the micro seg and, and things like that and then the pandemic really became a focus on that that remote access I think there was a lot of capacity issues that people were facing which I think they've now overcome which is fantastic everyone's working from home everything's working and things like that but now they're kind of going on that journey of actually when they're accessed 
how do we then manage and understand what they're communicating to and how we're protecting that. So I think probably over um, the last 18 months, things have obviously changed uh, with the remote working. But I think over the many, many years, just the um, the, the willingness and the, the need to do micro-segmentation has changed dramatically. I think looking back then, it was much more of an educational um, the meetings that we were going into. Um, but now it's been recognised as a kind of a highly effective st security strategy. A lot of organisation adopting it, or at least have it as a priority within their security strategy to do, you know, in the, within the next 12 months. And I think additionally as well, cloud is being adopted at such a rapid rate. And as they recommend the micro-segmentation controls, organisations are getting used to the controls that are required. And I think we forget that. I think a lot of this, the adoption and the willingness to do it is more around the people that's responsible for doing those controls. They have a lot on their plates already. The amount of technologies that they need to get up to speed with from a delivery, from an operational perspective, I think once they get in that journey, it becomes a lot easier and everyone's working as a team to deliver it. And then lastly, I would say the recent attacks that have made the headlines highlight the importance of restricting that lateral movement. I think we can all see the organizations have lost the majority of their systems as malware as attackers gain access through the weakest link and it's really became uh, a big problem and actually taken offline for many days. So I think it's really um, highlighted the priority and it's even now probably being pushed from a board level to understand their security posture in the enterprise to afford, uh, um, avoid major outages. No, you're absolutely right. So I guess sort of the pandemic, as annoying and frustrating it has been, there's sort of been a bit of a silver lining to it with people now uh, taking things a little bit more seriously, perhaps. But on the on the cloud stuff, so this is where it gets really interesting. I mean, I've, I've interviewed a fair few people specifically around cloud, but I mean, I'm, I'm really keen to get your thoughts. I mean, when we spoke, you mentioned that some people are still really unsure on how to architect their environments, specifically when mm. it does come to cloud. So perhaps, Andy, if you mm. can talk me through the reasons as to why this would be the case. Yeah. Um, cloud's an interesting, and uh, when I say architecture, it's more around the security architecture. It can be probably infrastructure as well. But this is a this is a really interesting one because organization, I think we can all agree, are doing amazing things when they adopt cloud and, and even agile technologies. Um, however, the customers, when it comes to cloud, are still responsible for the security of their services, which is probably causing a little bit of a confusion. So cloud providers uh, promote or use a shared responsibility model. Uh, basically, this means that cloud providers' responsibilities, security of the cloud, so the underlying infrastructure, while customers' responsibility is security, security in the cloud. In summary, the, the customer still needs to protect their services. And additionally, the rate of that new technology services is, is mind-blowing. So not even just to get their head around how are these um, infrastructure services being provisioned, how are they being secure, how do they work? It's so much information to take in to then get your head around having consistent security around it. So customers are having an opportunity to innovate but still need to maintain their security posture. Who's checking those security controls? Do they align to an organization's network governance model? And I think that's what we're seeing a little bit is do, do people have a consistent governance model or network security governance model 
that's really ready for hybrid environments. And I think it comes down to breaking, comes back to breaking it down to those IT services to have a very clear architecture and a security and a governance model for those ready for when they adapt. So whether they're migrated to cloud or they're, you know, cloud gone to another data center internally, they're agile enough to move and adapt to the transformation transformation of those services now and into the future. So there's a lot of things in there that you just said, but one of those was governance models. So yep. would you say most people have that at all? Um, probably not. Um, and if they do, I think the, I remember um, through the experience I had at the other enterprises, we always used to have a governance policy that we had with security modeling and things like that. That if you think about the way that security controls are implemented, it goes through design or architecture goes through design, it gets approval and then it gets implemented. I think we all know that sometimes things have to bypass some of those security controls and then it gets implemented. And the problem about that, because it's all a paper-based network governance model, as soon as it goes into operations, we kind of forget about how it's actually performing in real time. It's all right going through the design, it's gone through approval. How will we manage it on ongoing in real time when it's actually in the IT services? So I think that people are starting to have a network governance. People don't have one at all. But I think we've really got to start thinking about we have a policy that is actually being assessed in real time as it happens, and it needs to be as agile as the infrastructure that, that we're governing underneath it. Would you say in your experience, people write policies, do all documentation, it's been approved, but then no one does anything after that? Would you say that that's quite common? Um, don't want to talk out of you know out of talk, um, but yes, I do see that, um, and I don't think I don't think it's um, a thing that people don't just don't want to do. I don't think it's that at all. I think there's a lot of pressure on people to keep up with the delivery of all the IT services, the service levels and things like that, to deliver projects, which um, I think then forces the hand of saying, we need to get this done. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a shortcut. Um, and then that can maybe lead to um, holes and, and, and vulnerabilities going forward. Um, so I just think there needs to be a little bit more of rigor around that to ensure that if something goes in, they still got that assurance to assess it and then do something about it in an easy uh, and addressable way. No, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the key things here is that it's probably more so illuminating that people are overwhelmed. People are stressed out. They're, they're trying to get their head above the water every day, right? The velocity of how things move and then things change. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on people and teams and organizations. And one of the mm -hmm. things you said just before, which I'm keen to get your thoughts on, is taking all of the information in, like how to actually learn about all of the things that these guys are going to learn constantly, right? So what would be your approach to sort of, again, breaking that down to uh, learning what they've got to do, but in a way where, again, it doesn't feel overwhelming for people? Because, again, once you feel overwhelmed, you don't want to do it at all, right? It's a, it's a difficult one, I must admit. I mean, we're, um, we're, we're kind of um, extending our product into the AWS environment and then Azure and things like that. I mean, our team is is looking at all these new services that are coming on and it is a lot. I mean, what the, the rate that they are releasing new products is amazing. It's, it's just amazing. I, I think where 
the recommendation or what I'm seeing within organizations at the moment, they're really restricting the IT services that are available and what they need. They don't need the coolest kind of latest um, IT service or, or service that's been released by cloud. The thing that they're doing is really, I think, coming back to those business requirements. If we only need storage, then we're just going to keep with a storage on cloud that everyone can get familiar with. We don't, if we're going to have maybe microservices, there's probably about, I don't know now, 200 services probably on Amazon alone. I might have gone a bit too high there. I can't quite remember. Um, but really, we could say within an organization, we're only utilizing seven because that's what meets the business need. So then we can really skill up our team and everybody that's utilizing them servers, we can secure it correctly. And only when we're comfortable, we can then maybe introduce another service that's beneficial to the organization. We're not just going to spin things up for the sake of spinning things up. It really needs to come back to the benefits of the organization and the cost around it and how it fits into the overall operational models. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think sort of one of the, the insights that I'm hearing that you're saying is start with what you need, then add complexity. Whereas a lot of people start yep. with complexity and then it's too full on or things aren't addressed correctly or people don't know what's going on. So I think ease into it, right? Or else then yep. it's a recipe for Absolutely. disaster. Absolutely. I was I was talking to another um, organization the, the other month and I was talking about, are they going to adopt cloud? And the, the guy was brilliant. He just said, not the moment. And it, it was written, he just said, well, if you look at the team that I've got, they've got enough on their plates. Our IT applications are fine for what we're doing for the next two years. So we're going to really get our foundations right with our internal premises, on premises. And then only then we may look at going to the cloud services and only if we need them and if it makes sense from a cost perspective. And if you look at that, if it makes sense to the business, that's absolutely fine with what they're doing, which I think is great. Well, I guess it sort of leads back to your point earlier around the business requirements, right? So this guy that you're speaking to clearly knows where things are at, what needs to happen, but then what's sort of beyond in the next few years that may be a potential. Yeah, exactly. And I think the more change that, you know, is introduced to an organization, it can, it can, I'm not saying always, but it can introduce more risk. If you're always changing things, where I think it comes back to what we we're talking about, the secure baseline, if you know what you've got today, and you know your, you know the things that you improve. Why don't we get that locked down? Why don't we understand that? And then we can transform securely. And probably nine times out of ten, it also gets quicker when you've got that that secure foundation and you understand what you have within your environment. Yeah, changes like not even like even if you're working in an IT team or security team you're managing these changes, but then it's even for the, the rest of the company that have got to then abide by these processes or a new system that we need yeah. to, it's like everyone would roll their eyes like, oh, it's another change or a new thing that we have to learn or the, you know, change manager's got to come in and explain to us how this works, even though it was like three months ago, we had something else. So it, create, it creates yeah. that internal frustration then to, to people outside of your, your IT department, security departments. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. It's kind of, um, I think everyone, because they're hearing that things can happen quickly and it's just the touch of a button these days to spin up new services, it is. But what about the scalability? What about the capacity management? How are we securing it correctly? There's so many wrappers that go around the delivery of IT services where I think people just think we can spin up a service. How is it all connecting? There's a lot of pressure on the IT teams 
to deliver it and then manage it ongoing to the the benefits of the organization. And unfortunately, a lot of, I think I see this quite regularly, and I'm, I'm sure you talk to a lot of people that say the same thing, is that a lot of the IT people really want to do um, the best of the organization. They try their hardest to do these new services. They're very proud, and then something happens, and then everyone blames them for it. And they sit there and go, well, I was trying to do the best of the organization. I think sometimes they need to push back and say, we just can't take that on at the moment. We're going to deliver something, and then we get to that when we can. I totally hear where you're coming from. Absolutely been in that position before. But Andy, what do you think moving forward? Now, with everything that we discussed today, uh, the way businesses are currently moving forward and how they're choosing to architect their businesses to take advantage of zero trust, like where are the real challenges in impl- in, in implementation and the FAQs you're sort of getting predominantly from executives? Mm. Yeah, so I believe... Um, that the majority of organisations now want to adopt technologies like micro-segmentation and network policy management software to ensure they start deploying a zero-trust network. So I think that's really changed and that challenge is started to be overcome. I think that they are getting a lot more support from the executives to implement that. And I think really the challenges maybe come down to the the two things that we we touched on um, earlier in our conversation is really how to get started and the concern around the amount of overhead it's going to take to build and manage the necessary controls. So that first step is discovery. The good news, using automation can quickly discover the application dependencies and create that secure foundation to start making improvements. And as mentioned earlier, an organization can then start refining those security groups one application at a time to build a zero trust network. And then more importantly, they can start to secure their most critical application to get those quick wins and start showing really the the return of their investment to to prove that they are securing the the secure um, services. And just in terms of the FAQs from executives, what are some of like the main questions you're sort of getting on that front? Oh, it it comes back to how quickly, um, basically, what's the cost? How much overhead is going to be done to actually implement this? And we're we're kind of now uh, in a position that we can prove and kind of show that through automation, through the technology that we built, we really overcome a lot of those challenges. And now they're realising if I have this, it actually provides me a lot more of a um, a better foundation to then speed things up going forward and then I can even start um, a couple of our customers are using it to report even to the board that they they need to to say this is how our application the data for our most critical customers are within this IT service and it's locked down so it's really now translating into that business requirement as well which is great no I love that I uh, you know I've been in those positions before when I'm doing the reporting to how long things are going to take and I think there was something that we're working on. And I think someone calculated it was going to take 50 years and straight away. <laughs> like the way, like how many, like, uh, well, I forget specifically what it was. It's going back eight years ago. But I remember reporting on it. And then it was like someone had done the math saying, if we're doing, you know, this many applications, systems, whatever, it's going to take 50 years. And I'm pretty sure after yeah. that, that project was cut real quick. <laughs> or someone's still working on it and halfway through. Oh. So is it, yeah. 
I've seen it and heard it all. So, Andy, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today, sharing your insight. I mean, I learned a lot myself about this space, and I'm sure people who are listening have as well. But if people do have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about getting in contact with you? Yeah, um, for sure. And probably the best way to is to contact me via my LinkedIn, connect and uh, send me a message that way. And then I'll be more than happy to uh, have a chat and um, tell you more about uh, micro segmentation and uh, network policy management. Awesome. Yeah, really appreciate it, Andy. And yeah, definitely keen to get you back. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by kbi.media, the voice of cyber.